It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. January 25th, 1987. As halftime began, the scoreboard for Super Bowl 21 read Denver Broncos 10, New York Giants 9. As they shuffled into the locker room, the Giants' morale was low. Despite the close score, the Broncos had dominated the first half. But New York star linebacker Lawrence L.T. Taylor refused to go down without a fight. Earlier that year, L.T. had battled a drug problem and won. Now that he was clean, he wasn't going to let all that hard work go to waste. It was time to put up or shut up. As the Giants sat in the locker room, shoulders slumped, Taylor stepped forward and began, Listen, guys. We didn't play no type of football. The score is 10 to nine and they got every break and we played no giant football whatsoever. Not one iota of giant football. We're about to go out here and kick these guys' butts. It wasn't the most eloquent or memorable halftime speech ever given, but it did enough to rouse the giants from their stupor. Coming out of halftime, his teammates played like men possessed. And when the clock hit zero, the scoreboard read Giants 39, Broncos 20. Lawrence Taylor was a Super Bowl champion. He should have been on cloud nine. Instead, he was subdued, numb to the excitement. His mind was elsewhere. On what he would do after he left the stadium, on getting his hands on a baggie full of white powder, mixing it in with a hand-rolled cigarette, and the rush he'd get from that first lungful of crack cocaine. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we begin our dive into the legendary New York City linebacker Lawrence Taylor. When the Giants picked him second overall in the 1981 draft, they had no idea that they had selected the man who would change the game forever. They also had no idea that he would struggle with drug addiction and a host of personal problems that nearly ruined his career. This week, we'll chart LT's meteoric rise to the NFL. 
We'll also explore how his popularity around the league and the city of New York led him to a hard partying lifestyle and a secret addiction to crack cocaine. Next week, we'll follow LT's final seasons on the field and see how retirement drove him into a spiral of drug addiction and brushes with the law. Finally, we'll examine how a major incident in May 2010 threatened his attempt at redemption. In the 1980s, the game of football was changed forever, but the man responsible wasn't a quarterback or a running back. It was six foot three, 240 pound linebacker Lawrence L.T. Taylor. Bill Belichick, who was one of L.T.'s coaches on the New York Giants, once said, what makes L.T. so great, what makes him so aggressive, is his total disregard for his body. He was fast, he was mean, and if he set his sights on you, more often than not, you are gonna find yourself hitting the ground hard. Quarterbacks feared him. Coaches had no idea how to stop him. His fearlessness inspired and influenced defensive players for generations. But the disregard for his body didn't only apply to his style of play. Off the field, LT found himself drawn to drugs and alcohol. With temptation around every corner, LT became the life of the party as he polluted his body with booze and crack cocaine. The toll of such vices would have dire consequences, both in the stadium and in his home life. But before he became the unstoppable force known as LT, he was little Lonnie Taylor, born on February 4, 1959 in Williamsburg, Virginia. Though encouraged by his father Clarence to play football, his mother Iris refused to allow it. But when he was around 15, Iris finally gave LT permission to play Pop Warner, or youth football. In high school, he played defensive guard and quickly came to love being on defense. As he says in his memoir, LT, Over the Edge, I knew right away that I'd rather hit than be hit. Soon, it was time to start thinking of playing at the next level. But even at six foot one, 200 pounds, LT was slightly on the smaller side for what some of the major football colleges wanted. However, a coach at University of North Carolina was willing to take a chance on him. In the fall of 1977, at the age of 18, LT officially played his first game as a UNC Tar Heel. During his sophomore season, his coaches moved LT to linebacker. No one had any idea how consequential the change would be not just for LT, but for the entire sport. But it wasn't until LT's junior season that everything clicked. On October 20th, 1979, UNC faced number 15 North Carolina State. It was the game that introduced LT to the world. When the UNC defense took the field, LT lined up and faced down NC State quarterback Scott Smith. His eyes never left the Wolfpack ball handler. When the center snapped, LT charged. He blew past the two offensive guards like ragdolls and had a clear shot at Smith. And just as Smith was winding up to throw the ball down the field, the two men collided, jarring the ball loose. 
LT could see the ball bouncing out of Smith's hands and onto the grass. As the ball bounced, LT scooped it up and powered into the end zone. Touchdown Tar Heels. According to LT in his memoir, that play shifted the spotlight onto him. And that spotlight never left. As luck should have it, the day he made that major play against NC State was the same day he met sophomore Linda Cooley at a local bar in Chapel Hill. At first, Linda was hesitant to get involved with LT. He had a reputation for being a bit of a bully on campus and was allegedly expecting a child with another woman. But as they got to talking, she found herself smitten by LT's charming personality. The two quickly became sweethearts. In addition to his first real romance, college also gave LT his first taste of the party lifestyle. Without anyone to keep him under control, LT became a heavy drinker. According to him, quote, on Saturday nights, five of us would get a keg, drink that and maybe two bottles of Jack Daniels, and then go out on the town. Throughout college, LT also occasionally smoked marijuana, but realized he didn't care much for it, or drugs in general. According to him, college was when he first heard about cocaine, but given his preference for alcohol, he swore to stay away from it. He did have a football career to consider, after all. Going into his senior year, talks of LT playing professionally began to swirl. With each passing week in the fall of 1980, his reputation as a monster on the field only grew. Legendary Oklahoma coach Barry Switzer nicknamed him Godzilla. By the time his college career came to an end, LT had caught the attention of organizations like the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Giants. In addition to being named the ACC Player of the Year and a consensus All-American, Hype was building that the 21-year-old would be a top 10 pick in the upcoming draft. Some even thought he could be drafted first overall. The 1981 NFL Draft took place on April 28th and 29th at the New York Sheraton Hotel. Unlike today, top prospects weren't invited to the draft. So as the proceedings began, LT was watching from his family home in Williamsburg. With ESPN's cameras rolling, NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle announced that with the first overall pick, the New Orleans Saints had selected Heisman winner George Rogers, a running back out of South Carolina. The pick hardly came as a surprise to LT. The Saints coach had already made it clear the first pick wouldn't be him. He also knew different organizations had different priorities. So as the New York Giants went on the clock, LT headed into the kitchen to grab a beer. The previous season, their offense had been dismal. As a linebacker, LT figured they wouldn't be interested in him. He was wrong. While LT cracked open a cold one, he completely missed Roselle's announcement to the world that the Giants had selected him with the second overall pick. He was going to New York. Up until then, LT had spent most of his life in small towns. In the 1970s, the population of Williamsburg, Virginia was under 10,000 people, and Chapel Hill, North Carolina, had just over 30,000. Now, 
LT would be moving to New York, whose population in 1980 was over 7 million people. Giant Stadium, located on the outskirts of New York City in East Rutherford, New Jersey, had a capacity of over 80,000. Every Sunday, he'd be playing in front of twice the population of Williamsburg and Chapel Hill combined. All of a sudden, LT found himself going from a small pond to a very big ocean. And it was filled with sharks. New York in the 1970s was a city of crime and vice. Areas like 42nd Street were teeming with pimps, sex workers, and junkies. The Big Apple had quickly become known as Fear City. NYC may have been on the East Coast, but in the 1970s and leading into the 1980s, it was the Wild West. And that lawlessness extended to the rise in drugs. At the time, heroin was the prominent drug to take over the city. Nixon declared the rampant drug use America's public enemy number one. And infamous gangsters like Frank Lucas and Nicky Barnes flooded the streets with the stuff. Moving to New York City exposed the 22-year-old LT to a whole new lifestyle. He may have spent his college years binge drinking and smoking some marijuana, but New York offered every temptation imaginable. On top of navigating these new challenges, LT also had to navigate a hostile locker room. The Giants picking LT wasn't without its detractors within the organization. The coaches may have been excited, but his fellow defensemen weren't so welcoming. For the majority of the 1970s, the Giants had been one of the worst teams in the league. They hadn't made the playoffs since 1963, and 1972 was the last time they had a winning season. The year before drafting Lawrence Taylor, they finished a dismal 4-12. Some of the linebackers and defensive backs, including Hall of Famer Harry Carson, believed that the linebacker core was already strong. He thought they should have spent their pick on a position that was more crucial to upgrade, like a receiver or running back. However, Coach Ray Perkins had an eye for talent. He knew that when he took the job as the Giants' head coach, he'd be overseeing a rebuilding franchise. Under his command, he put together an incredible coaching staff, including Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. He also began building a defense to include the aforementioned Hall of Famer Harry Carson and pro bowlers Brian Kelly and Brad Van Pelt. With the addition of LT in 1981, the Crunch Bunch, as they would later be known, was born. Like all rookies, LT, now sporting number 56, was at the bottom of the depth chart, fourth team. It didn't matter that he was the second overall pick. He would have to earn a starting role. But both Parcells and Belichick saw something special in LT from the very first day of training camp. LT was fast, very fast. Instead of running with the other linebackers, he would sprint alongside the wide receivers, usually the fastest guys on a team. He could channel that quickness at the line of scrimmage, quickly rushing past blockers and guards and sacking the quarterback. He made veterans on the offensive line look like they had never played the game before. On day one of camp, LT and Bill Parcells began a relationship that would last for decades. 
Parcells knew exactly how to channel LT's ferocity into focus. He saw in LT the makings of one of the greats and would ride him harder than anyone else in camp. In return, LT grew to respect and love Parcells better than any coach he would have, though at times, in the heat of the moment, the two fought bitterly. The summer of 1981 was going well for LT. He had won a starting role, married his girlfriend, Linda Cooley, and had a son, Lawrence Taylor Jr. Just before his pro debut in September 1981, LT flew back to Chapel Hill to meet his new child, who they nicknamed TJ. The birth of his son had a powerful impact on LT. With his young family in his heart, LT was ready to go out onto the field to prove himself to everyone. Coming up, LT takes New York by storm. Now, back to the story. Over the summer of 1981, Lawrence L.T. Taylor had pushed himself to his limits to prove himself to his new coaches and teammates on the New York Giants. And now, on September 6, 1981, he was ready to take the field in his first official NFL game. On game day, L.T. entered Giants Stadium with butterflies in his stomach. It wasn't so much stage fright at playing in front of over 72,000 people. It was fear that he wasn't going to be the most dominant player of the game. As it turned out, those worries were unfounded. During the game, LT was told to line up against the Eagles' wide receiver, Harold Carmichael. When quarterback Ron Jaworski snapped the ball, the plan was for LT to slam into Carmichael and prevent him from running his route. Just before the snap, Jaworski gave the signal and Carmichael moved spots on the line, but immediately returned towards LT. It completely confused the Giants rookie. So much so that when Jaworski finally snapped the ball, LT lost sight of Carmichael and had no idea what to do. But LT had a rule he always lived by on the field. If you get confused, Rush and get the quarterback on his back as soon as you can. And that's exactly what he did. Ignoring the play, LT blew past the Eagles' offensive line and drove Ron Jaworski into the ground. It was LT's first professional sack. And Jaworski quickly learned to keep an eye out for number 56 for the rest of his career. The Giants would go on to lose their opening game against the Eagles, 10-24. But the NFL world got a peek into what was to come. In the following weeks, teams would mark their calendars for when they were going to play the Giants. Studying LT's film became priority number one. In his first season, LT quickly became a fan favorite and city hero. Fans would paint their stomachs with the letters LT at games and chant that LT was a god. LT couldn't get enough of it. But his rookie year wasn't without its challenges. A few months into his first season, LT had his first encounter with a new opponent, cocaine. That year, LT lived with fellow rookie linebacker Byron Hunt and rookie tight end Dave Young in Passaic, New Jersey, about six miles from Giants Stadium. 
During a party midway through the season, LT got offered a line of cocaine. Unlike his resistance to doing drugs in college, this time he accepted. Maybe it was pressure from his friends. Maybe his burgeoning success had clouded his judgment. Maybe he just wanted to try something new. But whatever his reasoning was, LT loved the euphoric feeling the cocaine gave him. LT caught his first drug rush that night, but he knew that making it a habit could threaten his career. Hitting guys on the field and bringing quarterbacks down with a sack provided a stronger boost than any drug ever could. His mantra was, Taylor controls the drug. The drug doesn't control Taylor. For the time being, he was going to hold firm to that. But that night in Passaic, a secret relationship began. But even as he began experimenting with drugs, his first season would go down as one of the greatest rookie years in NFL history. LT collected nine and a half sacks, two forced fumbles, and one interception. And with those individual accomplishments came team success. In 1981, the Giants made it to the playoffs for the first time since 1963 though they lost in the divisional round against the San Francisco 49ers, it was a landmark season for the Giants. And for LT, the Defensive Rookie of the Year, the Defensive Player of the Year, and a Pro Bowler, it cemented his place in history. Unfortunately, 1982 wouldn't go quite as planned. The season was shortened to only nine games due to a 57-day player's strike. The Giants finished four and five, a setback that would see head coach Ray Perkins resign in order to become head coach of Alabama. But for LT, it was another banner year. During the Thanksgiving Day game against the Detroit Lions, he intercepted a pass from Gary Danielson and ran it 97 yards for a touchdown. It was a highlight moment that took him to a second straight Defensive Player of the Year award. But during his sophomore year, the legend of LT after dark began to form. According to LT, it was during his second season at 23 when his cocaine use increased. At first, it was only recreational and he still preferred alcohol as his main vice. But as LT would go out and party in the big city, the availability of cocaine made it too hard for him to avoid. LT kept his drug use a secret, and he made sure to never use it on game days. Much of what was said about him was speculation and gossip. Teammates whose lockers were next to LT's, the men closest to him and who knew him the best, weren't even fully aware of his cocaine habits. And his wife, Linda, who was still living over 500 miles away in Chapel Hill, had no idea that he was living a double life. Linda recalled finding a small baggie of cocaine in LT's coat pocket during a visit to New Jersey. When she confronted him about it, he lied and said he was just holding on to it for one of his roommates. Linda, who was under the impression that her husband was against drugs because of his dislike of marijuana back in college, believed him. As his use of drugs began to increase during the offseason, the Giants were in the midst of a coaching change. After Ray Perkins left in 1982, defensive coordinator Bill Parcells was promoted to head coach. 
Bill Belichick would be moved from linebacker's coach to defensive coordinator. Parcell's first year was abysmal. In the 1983 season, the team finished 3-12 with one tie. The defense, however, wasn't the problem. It was the offense. Starting QB Scott Bruner managed only nine touchdowns with 22 interceptions. He was sacked 31 times. Things on that side of the ball didn't seem to click, and LT grew frustrated. He began to show up late for practice or miss it entirely. When Parcells called him out on this behavior, LT shifted the blame off himself and onto his teammates. He wasn't the problem. They were. But Parcells refused to give up on his star player. He continued to hold LT accountable for his actions. And for that, Parcells won his respect. But even with LT's stamp of approval, Parcells was already in the hot seat. In fact, word was going around the papers that University of Miami coach Howard Schnellenberger would be offered the Giants' head coaching position. As rumors swirled about Parcells' future, LT was also growing frustrated with his contract. As word got out that he wasn't happy with the Giants, LT received a lifeline from the owner of the New Jersey Generals of the short-lived USFL, Donald Trump. Even though the USFL didn't have the same cachet as the NFL, LT decided to hear the man out. Without his agent's knowledge, LT agreed to play for Trump when his contract with the Giants expired after the 1987 season. When LT's agents learned of this deal, they met with both Trump and Giants GM, George Young, to renegotiate LT's contract with the Giants. In addition to demanding a significant raise, LT only agreed to re-sign with the Giants if Bill Parcells kept his job. Coach Parcells always had his back. Now it was time for LT to return the favor. By the end of the talks, LT got everything he wanted. He was able to buy out his agreement with Trump. He earned a new $650,000 yearly salary that would rise to roughly $1.1 million by 1986. And best of all, Bill Parcells kept his job. All thanks to LT who found himself in an unprecedented position of power within the organization, both on and off the field. By the end of the 1984 season, Linda and TJ had finally joined LT in New Jersey, and he led the Giants to a 9-7 record and another playoff appearance. 25-year-old LT was the biggest thing on the field and the biggest celebrity in New York. Fans ate up his ability to quickly and perfectly time getting off the line of scrimmage and bring down the likes of Jaworski, Theismann, Ken O'Brien, Todd Blackledge, and Joe Montana. It didn't matter how many men were supposed to block him, LT came crashing through like a train, and the last thing you wanted to be was in his way. Around the league itself, LT's feared competitive reputation continued to grow. Other teams would create their offensive strategy based solely on where LT was going to line up, sometimes adding extra tight ends to block. And when defensive coordinator Bill Belichick picked up on it, they would move LT to a different part of the line of scrimmage. The results were almost always the same. Number 56, taking down the quarterback. Prior to LT's entrance into the league, 
the inside linebacker, the one that lines up opposite of the quarterback, was considered the most important position on the defense. They did everything, blitzes, covers, dropbacks, and so forth. On each side of the middle linebacker was an outside linebacker. This was where LT lined up. Outside linebacker was more of a reactionary position. Keep the eye on the ball and from there, determine what to do. Lawrence Taylor was different. He was more of a pass rusher from the outside. Whenever the ball snapped, LT blasted through the offensive line, looking to drag down the quarterback. Because of him, other defenses began to employ this strategy into the outside linebacker position. But for as hard as LT hit, he never did so with the intention of hurting anyone. That was the last thing he ever wanted to do. LT wasn't a dirty player by any means, just an aggressive one. Football, by its very nature, is violent, and with that violence comes injury. LT himself suffered from a few concussions during his early years. But no matter how much you train to protect yourself or others, accidents are bound to happen. To LT's great lament, he was involved in one of the worst NFL hits in history, a hit that ended another player's career. Going into week 11 of the 1985 season, the Giants were 7-3. and three. They were scheduled to play the Washington Redskins on Monday Night Football on November 18th. It was the second meeting of the season. The first resulted in a Giants victory, 17-3. In the second quarter, the score was tied, 7-7. Washington had the ball. Like every quarterback who faced LT, Joe Theismann paid close attention to where LT was lining up. Theismann snapped the ball and immediately handed it off to fullback Joe Riggins. As Riggins began to run up the middle, he turned around and tossed the ball back to Theismann. They were executing a flea flicker, a classic trick play intended to buy a wide receiver some time to make his way down the field. But as Theismann got the ball back, he saw that the pocket was closing around him. There wasn't going to be enough time to launch it towards Art Monk or Gary Clark. He was going to have to scramble away. Out of nowhere, LT and Harry Carson descended on Theismann. LT grabbed the QB and brought him to the ground. As the men collided, LT's knee smashed directly on Theismann's leg. The linebacker knew something bad had happened immediately. He could hear the pop as if a gun had gone off right next to him. He jumped up off of Theismann and started screaming for help, motioning for doctors and trainers on the sideline. Theismann's leg was unnaturally bent below the knee. He had suffered a compound fracture. As everyone waited, cameras captured a physically distraught Taylor as he waited for Theismann to be taken off of the field. LT loved to hit hard, but he never wanted to end another man's career. November 18, 1985, would be 36-year-old Joe Theismann's last game. During the recovery, he made the decision to retire. In subsequent years, LT refused to talk about the hit. Whenever it was replayed for an interview, LT made sure to never look at the monitors. Back in 1985, the hit on Joe Theismann was the lowest moment of his career to date. 
While he has never explicitly said that ending Theismann's career was what led to his escalated use of crack that year, the timing is hard to ignore. As the 1985 season progressed, LT's addiction would soon take control of him. Coming up, the Super Bowl is finally in Lawrence Taylor's sights. And so are the repercussions for his crack addiction. Now back to the story. On November 18, 1985, 26-year-old Lawrence L.T. Taylor made a hit that inadvertently marked the end of quarterback Joe Theismann's playing days. It was a low point in L.T.'s thriving career. But the 1985 season wasn't just the season with one of the most notorious hits in NFL history. For Lawrence Taylor, it signaled the descent into a deeper addiction to crack cocaine. By this time, LT had moved from snorting cocaine to smoking it by rolling it up in his cigarettes. And it was once he transitioned into smoking the drug that LT betrayed his own mantra. The drug now took control of him. He went from using less than a gram or a couple of lines over the course of a few weeks to buying multiple ounces every week. Well, the rush from cocaine now eclipsed the rush he felt from football. In fact, LT claims that during huddles, he would begin to think about his next fix instead of the game itself. And now that Linda was settled in New Jersey, LT had a hard time hiding his addiction from her. It's unclear when Linda finally came to realize that LT was a crack addict. But when she found out, she did what she could to try and help her husband get control of it. But LT didn't want help. And so Linda and LT's agent would sometimes be forced to scour New York crack dens to bring LT home. But while he wasn't able to hide his addiction from Linda, he was able to keep it hidden from his teammates. At that time, it was up to individual teams to conduct their own internal drug tests. With performance-enhancing steroids not yet in the picture, teams were mostly on the lookout for players abusing their bodies with recreational drugs. Within the Giants organization, if a player tested positive for an illegal substance, all the team would do was recommend he enter treatment. At some point in the 1985 season, the Giants tested LT, and his urine came back dirty. But Coach Parcells repaid LT's loyalty by helping him keep the test quiet. He advised LT to seek treatment in New York, but left it at that. However, LT didn't think he had a problem. He ignored Parcells' advice and devised a way to beat any future drug tests. In his books about the 1980s Giants, Writer-producer Jerry Barca says that running back Butch Woolfolk, a man who stayed clean from both drugs and alcohol, would supply LT with clean urine. As Barca states in his book, Big Blue Wrecking Crew, LT put the urine in a pill bottle. When it came time for this test, LT shoved it in his jock strap. He went into the bathroom stall and poured the clean urine into the test cup. And by beating the drug tests, he was able to continue doing what he loved, partying. As LT put it himself, on a typical night, I'd pick up one of my pals and start our adventure at a bar in Teaneck and then take Manhattan by storm, 
bouncing from Studio 54 to the Underground to Sweetwaters to the Cellar to Rascals to Bentleys to the Hasbrook Heights Sheraton on the front row, wherever the party was. But first, after partying in Teaneck, there was a stop to be made. Well, by LT's own admission, he and his friends would buy $700 worth of cocaine from guys up in Spanish Harlem between 111th and 118th streets in New York City. And once LT was high, there was no stopping him. He would find himself on top of bars, guzzling down pitchers of beer or kamikazes, a drink consisting of vodka, triple sec, and lime juice. But it wasn't just the hard drinking and drug use that made up LT's vices. That was just the tip of the iceberg. LT was also addicted to women. But then again, that had been true ever since he fathered a child just before he met Linda. LT's womanizing was especially rampant while he was on the road. After away games, LT would return to his hotel room with multiple women on each arm. While Linda was back in New Jersey raising the children, LT was in some city having sex with the local women. He was also a major gambler. According to LT, he would keep $110,000 worth of chips in a safe deposit box in case he wanted to go down to Atlantic City and gamble, an easy two and a half hour drive from Giant Stadium. He recounts losing $150,000 at once while also winning about $200,000 in a single session. But no matter how bad LT got, he made sure that he was never too far gone on game days. He admits that he would be out late the night before, but come 1 p.m. on Sundays in the fall, he was game ready. And he swore to never take drugs during the game itself. Somehow, LT managed to maintain his elite production, despite his wild private life. He ended the 1985 NFL season with 13 sacks, but the team still continued to struggle in the playoffs. The Giants lost to the Chicago Bears 21 to nothing in the divisional round. With his free time, LT continued to sink further into the drug abyss. But Linda Taylor never gave up hope, and she urged her husband to enter rehab. With mounting pressure from his wife and off-the-record comments from sports journalists, LT knew it was time to face the music. In the early months of 1986, the 27-year-old linebacker checked into Houston Methodist Hospital for drug rehabilitation. LT found rehab itself frustrating. He hated the therapy sessions and thought the actual process was aggravating. The facility wasn't exactly holding him accountable either. He got his own room with a TV, refused to go to meetings, and could leave whenever he wanted. According to Linda Taylor in the documentary LT, The Life and Times, rehab at that time was a joke. The only solace he got out of the whole affair was a newfound love for golf. It was during rehab that he got hooked on golfing, something that has stayed with him to this day. He would need golf to keep himself sane. Not long after LT checked into rehab, Famed sports broadcaster Howard Cosell broke the news to the world that LT was undergoing drug rehab. Many around the country knew that he liked to have a good time, but his reputation outside of New York was more or less restricted to football. 
When the word broke about the failed test, many of LT's own teammates were shocked. Almost all of them had known that he was a heavy drinker, partier, and womanizer, but LT had done a pretty good job of keeping his crack cocaine use under wraps. Now, it was all out of the bag, and LT spent the rest of the offseason feeling embarrassed. However, by the time the 1986 season began, LT was focused entirely on football. He had at least somewhat tamed his crack addiction and was confident that this was finally going to be the Giants' year. He could hear the Vince Lombardi trophy calling to him. It was time to put up or shut up. And put up, LT did. Number 56 was a monster. Whether it was Ron Jaworski in Philadelphia, Jay Schrader in Washington, or Tommy Kramer from Minnesota, Lawrence Taylor found his targets and shoved their faces into the dirt. He was a force to be reckoned with. At the end of the season, LT had a career-high 20-and-a-half sacks, a sack-and-a-half away from Mark Gastineau's record of 22. He was named Defensive Player of the Year and NFL Most Valuable Player. His 1986 performance would go down as one of the greatest seasons in NFL history. And for once, it wasn't just him that dominated the field. Heading into the playoffs, the Giants were in the midst of accomplishing what they had set out to do when drafting the linebacker back in 1981. At 14-2, they finished the regular season with their best record in franchise history. All they needed to cap it off was a Super Bowl win. Their first opponent in the playoffs were the San Francisco 49ers. On January 4th, 1987, the Giants smashed them 49-3. For the NFC Championship, they faced off against divisional rivals, the Washington Redskins. The Giants won 17-0, and now they were finally heading to the Super Bowl. Super Bowl 21 took place on January 25th, 1987 at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. The New York Giants versus the Denver Broncos. The score was 10 to 9 going into halftime. Had it not been for a couple of missed field goals and a safety, the Broncos would have been up by double digits instead of just one point. Giants quarterback Phil Simms would say the team wasn't worried going into halftime, but LT remembers it differently. He remembers seeing guys angry with their heads held down. LT's speech wasn't anything out of a Hollywood film, but it got the job done. As the Big Blue Wrecking Crew, they decided their own fate. The final score was New York 39, Denver 20. For the 17th time that year, coach Bill Parcells was showered with Gatorade, a tradition among the Giants that, for the first time, was seen across the nation. Lawrence Taylor may not have had the career game he would have liked, but he got the job done. As LT held the Vince Lombardi trophy over his head, he didn't get the excitement or pleasure winning a Super Bowl should have given him. For LT, football was always about chasing the win. Sure, he was happy to finally be a champion, but once the confetti stopped falling and the stadium lights died down, LT was left wondering what was next. While he was trying to figure out the answer to that question, the city of New York only grew to love Lawrence Taylor even more. In their eyes, he was a hero, a god. 
Now that he had helped bring a Super Bowl win to the Big Apple, LT could do no wrong, and he knew it. After the Super Bowl, his inner demons began to show themselves once again. He left rehab entirely focused on football. But now that the season was over and he was a champion, it was time to go back to his hard partying ways. LT started smoking crack cocaine again. He and his friends went to as many New York City clubs as they could fit in a night. They were celebrated everywhere they went. LT helped bring the Giants their first Super Bowl win. He found himself partying with notorious figures like Mike Tyson, O.J. Simpson, and his wife, Nicole Brown. It didn't matter who you were. If you could throw back like LT, you were good by him. But the good times were on their way out. Word was spreading about the NFL's drug problem. After the New England Patriots lost the Super Bowl in 1985, a report broke that they had a cocaine problem in the locker room. Their coach volunteered to have his team drug tested by the league for the following year, and soon every team was under the same scrutiny. By 1987, the NFL had implemented a three-strike policy for failed drug tests. Strike one was essentially counseling and examination by the team physicians. Strike two was a four-game suspension. And strike three was a permanent ban from the NFL. Sometime in 1987, LT failed his first official drug test. Since this was LT's first strike, the linebacker received what surmounted to little more than a warning. As long as he didn't fail another one, he was in the clear. But LT couldn't leave his love for drugs behind him. In August 1988, the NFL announced that he had failed his second drug test. Unlike the slap on the wrist he'd received for the first failed test, this one came with actual consequences. He would miss the first four games of the new season. For his entire professional career, LT had been a hero for the people of New York. He had helped rejuvenate a faltering team. He had revolutionized the game, and he had helped bring home a championship. But in the fall of 1988, he was at rock bottom. His drug use, which he had tried so desperately to keep a secret after his first stint at rehab, had become public knowledge. He knew that his suspension was the wake-up call he needed to finally go on the straight and narrow. He had a family to take care of. He had his own body to take care of. If there was anyone who could pull himself up and turn his life around, it was Lawrence Taylor, number 56, Godzilla, Superman. Little did he know that the failed 1988 drug test would be the least of his problems and that once the game finally ended for him, he would be brought down to even darker depths. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. Next week, we'll explore LT's chaotic and troubled life after the NFL and how his attempt at redemption was derailed by a 2010 statutory rape charge. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Joe Guerra and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.